Amen. Thank you, Pastor Roberts. Good morning, church. All too soon, it's the second week of the second quarter of the year. Time really ran fast, you know. Uh, I just remember, just I, we planned, my wife and I, we planned something in April. And it's almost up. I'm like, wow. Where, where did the time go? Amen. Well, we thank God for our gathering today. I'm going to start a series now to the end of this month on the church. Amen. And the, the title of this message is His Church, The Church. His Church, The Church. I'm sorry that today I don't have PowerPoints, okay? I actually have the slides ready, so I'll send the notes to all of you, okay? But try and write something down. Uh, I'll, I'll make sure that on various platforms you have the slides, but try and jot down something. Amen. Um, over the past year, the pandemic um, also affected churches. It didn't just affect businesses, it, it affected churches. It affected the average Christian's understanding of what or who is the church. And during this pandemic, people are redefining or rediscovering what is truly the church. I'm all for redefining and rediscovery as long as it is in line with the word of God. So with that said, we are going to look at what the church is from a scriptural point of view. My assignment today is to define what the church is by also looking at what it is not and look at some pertinent features of it. I trust that this series will be a blessing to us. So uh, turn your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 to 20. It is said that when you are preaching to 40 years upwards, you say, open your Bibles. But if they are 40 and below, turn on your Bibles. The world has really changed, eh? So, whichever, whether you are opening or turning on, just open your Bibles. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 to 20. Amen. Wow, all your black faces are intimidating me, but I'll preach. Amen. <laughs> I don't see anybody. But it's all good. We are glad you are here. Amen. Let, let's read. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bajona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock. So Peter had a, a, a christening ceremony. This is the first christening ceremony I've seen whereby the person is actually old. Fully grown. The christening ceremony. Because Peter's name was called Simon. Jesus said, I'm having a christening ceremony right now. You have mentioned something that has touched my heart. I'm christening you. So for your information, adults too can be christened. Amen. In the Bible, adults were christened. Look at Abraham. We did that last week. 
he was almost 100. He, he had a christening ceremony. His name was changed. Amen. So, adults, it's okay if you want to change your name. We will bless it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound on heaven. Whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus Christ. Let's say a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for an opportunity to hear your word. We thank you that the spirit of the instructor is in the house. Father, speak through me. Think through me. I pray that may I be inspired by the leadership of the Holy Spirit. I pray that may understanding come. May your word come forth in the fullness and in the power of your spirit, yet in simplicity and in clarity of your speech. I thank you for answered prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Jesus and his disciples had come to Caesarea Philippi. It was said that Caesarea Philippi was a city heavily steeped in paganism. You know, to bring it to home, it was said that Caesarea Philippi was like the sin city of its day. Like in America, you know, the sin city is called Las Vegas. So Caesarea Philippi was similar to Las Vegas. But they were worse than Las Vegas because they were heavily steeped in idolatry and, and they worshipped a god called Pan. Uh, sometimes I ask myself, why did Jesus come here? But from the background, that was where Jesus was standing at the very roots when he decided to engage his disciples a question on his identity. He asked his people, who do you say I am? And when, you, when we read a verse like we just did, the Bible lets us know that different viewpoints came. It's so funny that these people had spent three years of ministry with Jesus, but they really didn't know Jesus. You know, some, so, all this while they've worked with Jesus, they've seen him raise the dead. They've seen him said, Lazarus, come forth. They've seen him multiply um, fish and bread. All sorts of miracles. He even took fish out of the, I'm sorry, he took a gold coin out of the fish's mouth for the, for the people to go and pay tax. Yet, when they saw all these wonderful acts, they couldn't truly know who Jesus is. I've come to realize that it's not miracles that will help you to know Jesus. What will help you to know Jesus is a revelation. The Bible lets us know that they all said, you are John the Baptist. Some said, you are Jeremiah. Others said, you are Elijah. But the Bible lets us know that Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, you are the Christos, the son of the living God. And Jesus said something to Peter. He said, flesh and blood did not certainly reveal this to you by my, my father in heaven. Now, he says something in verse 18, which is going to be the crux of our sermon series. Jesus talked about what he was building. You know, someone once said, if Jesus was a man and he was here, what would he build? Well, the Bible answers it here. He was not building a school, even though a school is very important. He was not building a hospital. Even the hospital is very, very important. He was not building an event center 
or even holding a conference or a crusade, Jesus focused on one thing that he wanted to build, and that was the church. And Jesus said something. He said, I will build my church. He was not talking about a church. He was talking about his church. And that's why the, th- the title of this message is His Church, The Church. Now, before we look at the definition of the church, let us look at what a church is not. Number one, a church is not a building. It is not a building. So sometimes people may even use that as a description. Or if you pass left, pass right, you know, you see the church, you know, and normally they are pointing to a building. That is not the church. And we will prove that with scripture. Number two, a church is not a denomination. You know, there are some people who call church like by denomination. Where are you going? I, I am going to Roman. That's like, I'm a Catholic. <laughs> you know, they, they like to affiliate denominations to church. That, that is not a church. A church has nothing to do with denomination. Whether charismatic, Pentecost, Baptist, that is not a church. Amen. Number three. A church is not a group that meets on Sundays. That's not a church. Any group can meet on Sundays. The fact that a group has met on Sundays or on a Saturday because some meet on Saturday doesn't make it a church. So, first and foremost, the church is not a what. The church is a who. So, may I say that during this pandemic, No church was closed. No church. Because the church is not a what. The what is the building. The buildings were closed, but the church in itself was not closed. So anybody who goes about, even pastors are trying to fight the church, we have to open. uh, Your definition of church is very skewed. Because the church was never closed in the first place. The church is not a what. The church is a who. Now, you have to understand that when Jesus mentioned the word church, it wasn't a foreign word to the disciples or the audience of his day. Church was an everyday use. It was just a a usage of word. Um, It had different meanings depending on context. And that's why when Jesus was talking about the church, he, he, he specified... I will build my church because there were other things called churches. So I want to talk about four things during the time of the disciples. To the Jew, when you mention the word a church, it meant an assembly that gathered for a sacred purpose. A typical example is in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 1. The Bible lets us know that King David said to all the assembly. The word assembly there is where you get the word church. So that was a church. And why were they gathered? They were gathered because King David was going to talk to them about them giving offering to build a temple of God. So when a gathering meets for a sacred purpose, say to talk about the temple, say to talk about um, 
donating to the needs of the tabernacle, say to, to bring their tithe to the Levites and the priests, that was a church. It was an assembly purposely for sacred things like a church or a temple education. So when King David met his people, at that point, that's a church. So when the Jew had that word church, he might think of this. The second definition of the word church is also to the Gentile. You know, the Gentile region, mostly the Greeks. When you say the word church, it also meant an assembly of people in a public place for deliberation. You know, they are what we call the lawful assembly. They are the lawmakers of the land. That's church. So let me put it in today's word. A typical example would be the U.S. House of Representatives. Similar to that. That was a church. So you see, that, that word church is not necessarily a Christian or a biblical word. It was a word that was used. And a typical example is in Acts chapter 19, verse 39. The Bible talked about if you had any inquiry, it should be determined in the lawful assembly. That word there is church. So to the Jew, it means an assembly gathering for a sacred purpose. To the Gentile, mostly Greeks, it meant, oh, it's an assembly that has gathered for deliberation or things pertaining to lawmaking. Number three, it was also used for a group that had gathered in confusion or by chance. So when you say that word church, when people gather without an agenda, that was also church. And a typical example is in Acts chapter 19, verse 32. And I'll read this one. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused and most of them did not know why they had come together. So when people gather without an agenda, without a purpose, and they are in a tumult, that is also a church. So when Jesus mentioned the word church, all these definitions will be going on in their mind, depending on the context or the scenario. And the last thing, when you also mentioned the word church, it also meant an assembly of elders who reconciled matters among feuding partners. So, during Jesus' time, when you had an issue with somebody and you are at loggerheads or you are feuding with one another, the place of settlement was called the church. So let's read Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 to 17. Now, if you read it in the King James and in the New King James, it will use the word church. And if, if, if you are a Christian today in this 21st century and you read it with that lens, you may think it's talking about today. But church meant something different. So I'm going to read this in the World Messianic Bible because it's normally translated straight from the Hebrew. And listen to this. If your brother sins against you, Go show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained back your brother. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two or more with you that are the mouth of, excuse me, two or three witnesses, every word may be established. 
If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the assembly. Okay, so that's the church. So the church was an assembly of elders who reconciled matters between partners who are feuding. Do you understand? If he refuses to hear the assembly also, let it be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. So these elders, they were made up of wise people, some religious leaders, some teachers. It was a mixture of people. It wasn't just spiritual people. It was a mix of people, teachers of the law, governors, people who are aged and who, 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 who understand things concerning the land. They all form a council. That council is called a church. They gather and then they reconcile matters between people who are feuding. So when Jesus talked about, I will build my church, he wasn't talking about an assembly that gathered for sacred purposes, per se. He wasn't talking about a public council of deliberation, per se. He wasn't talking about a crowd that gathered by confusion or by chance who had no agenda. And he also was not talking about an assembly made up of an eclectic mix of people who reconciled matters. When Jesus was talking about, I will build my church, what was Jesus talking about? If you look at this word, the church, the church comes from the Greek word ecclesia. And the word ecclesia means called out ones. So when Jesus said, I will build my church, he was saying, I'm going to build my called out ones. Psalm 50 verse 5, gather my sins together who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. So a church is a collection of called out ones. A church is a collection of believers, an army of Christians gathering to worship God. That is the church. So when Jesus said, I am building my church, Jesus was talking about a different kind of church in that scenario. And that was foreign. They didn't know about that. So there were four types of churches that were painted in the minds of people. But when Jesus said, I am building my church, he was talking about, I'm going to build an assembly. It's not a what, it's a who. I'm building an assembly of believers, a congregation of people who believe in me, who will gather solely for the purpose of worship. That is what Jesus calls the church. Now, Jesus talked about how he will build a church. And the church was going to be built on something. And when you read Matthew chapter 16, verse 18 again, Jesus told Peter, I say to you, he christened him, you are Peter, and I will build my church on this rock. Now, what is the rock? The rock is the revelation knowledge of Jesus as Lord. The church is not built on Peter. Peter is a human being. Peter died first century. After first century, there have been 20 more centuries and the church is still existing. So this one, even just common sense alone will let you know the church was not built on Peter. 
Because if it was built on Peter, when Peter died, the church died. So when Jesus is saying that I will build this church on the rock, what rock is Jesus going to build it on? He is going to build it on the revelation knowledge, that piece, that rock, which means Jesus is the Christ. God, that's the answer Peter gave. When Peter talked about the identity of Jesus, he said, you are Christ, the son of the living God. And that was a rock. It's revelation knowledge. That's why when you read Daniel chapter 11, verse 32b, the Bible says, they that know they are God, they shall be strong. They shall do exploits. You see, knowing God is like contacting a piece of rock. You become stable. You become resolute. So, the church is built on the revelation knowledge of Jesus as Lord. How do I know that? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 to 11. Apostle Paul did what is called church planting. And what's church planting? Church planting means to go to a place and then plant a church. And look at how he planted the church. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder. I pray for every church planter that may we become wise master builders. And what qualifies us to be called wise master builders? Listen, I have laid the foundation and another builds it. Now, when Jesus was also talking to Peter, he was also talking about foundation. The foundation on which I will build the church is called a rock. Now, let's look at the foundation. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation, no other foundation, never forget that, no other foundation can anyone lay that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And by the end of this scripture, by the, I'm sorry, by the end of this sermon, we will, need, we will read another scripture which will settle it that Jesus is the rock upon which the church is built. The church is built on the revelation knowledge of Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And that is why the church has spanned centuries. And Jesus says something. When the church is built on this solid foundation, the gates of Hades or the gates of hell can't prevail against it. I like what one Bible commentator said. His name is called John Trapp. He talks about the gates of Hades as the power and the policy of hell combined. So when the church is built on the revelation knowledge of Jesus is Christ, the son of the living God, is built on a rock. And the Bible lets us know that the gates of hell, which David Trapp says, sorry, John Trapp says that the power and the policy of hell combined cannot prevail against the church. It can't prevail against the church. The church is a mighty unstoppable force. I have news. Social media can never kill the church. It can't prevail against the church. News outlets can't prevail against the church. Um, me, um, 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 media prints like newspapers, magazines, articles can't kill the church. Personalities, nobody can kill the church. 
celebrities can't kill the church. Billoners, multi billoners, let a league of billoners form. It can't kill the church. Avengers, I know people like this Avengers movie, a collection of superheroes. They can combine their forces, they can't kill the church. You know why? Because the church is built on the revelation knowledge of Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the power and the policy of hell combined can't stop the church. And if the power and the policy of hell combined can't stop the church, who are you, human being, to stop the church? You can ask Paul. One time, Paul tried to stop the church, and he went blind. And when he went blind, that is how he became converted. He met Jesus. And when he met Jesus, Jesus told him one thing. He said, it is very hard to kick against the pricks or to kick against the goats. When you are fighting the church, it is just like kicking against the pricks. When you kick against the pricks, believe you me, you are going to be injured one way or another. The church is an unstoppable mighty force because the church is built on the revelation knowledge of Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. That is the church. I like John Trapp's commentary. The power and the policy of hell combined cannot stop the church. So nothing can stop the church. There is no hope for hell. There is no hope for pan. And when Jesus was talking about this, he was perhaps even referring to Caesarea Philippi, which was a cesspool of immorality, a cesspool of paganism at his side. He was saying that the gates of hell, probably referring to Caesarea Philippi, even if the church is planted here, based on the revelation knowledge of Jesus as Lord, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'm a missionary by the grace of God. One of the things I don't believe is there is a saying among missionaries, church planters, the grounds are too hard. There is nothing like the grounds are too hard. Wherever you plant a church, whether it's in Alaska or whether it's in the North Pole, the church will still succeed. Do you know why? Because the church is built on the revelation knowledge of Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and nothing if the powers and the policy of hell combined cannot prevail against the church, I'm sorry, then no human elements, no human factor will be able to dissolve or close down the church. You understand? So for me, I believe that wherever a church is planted, it will work. And Jesus, he looked at that place which was so immoral, and probably a very hopeless place to stay. A very hopeless place to raise up your kids. And he says that even if the church is built here, where the gates of hell represent, it will not crash. It will not prevail against the church. I present to you today, this morning, that the church is a mighty, unstoppable force. Now, when you look at verse 19, Jesus told Peter something. He said, I will give you keys. I'll give you keys. Now, keys are a figurative expression for authority. So when Jesus was talking about keys, he was not going to hand them. You know, Jesus was not a locksmith. You know, he didn't have keys to give. When Jesus was talking about, I'm going to give you keys, he was just talking about a figurative expression 
of authority. And what were these keys for? He says they are for binding and loosening. For whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you lose on earth is loose in heaven. Now, may I explain to you the meaning of binding and loosening? Binding and loosening is not the common phrase of binding and loosening that we are all associated with. Binding and loosening was synonymous with Jewish law. Rabbis, it was people in authority who were able to bind and loose. A typical example is rabbis. When it comes to binding, binding means forbid. And loosing means permit. So when it came to observing the righteous requirements of the law, anything that you are forbidden to do is called binding. And anything you, you, you have permission to do is called loosing. So, Jesus was also promoting Peter from a disciple to an authoritative figure who will have a central plan in the new covenant to bind and to loose. So, it's not the popular term we associate that with. Now, let me give you a typical example of binding and loosing. Go with me to Matthew chapter 12, verse 1 to 8. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1 to 8. At that time, Jesus went through the green fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the Lord that on the Sabbath, yet the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even on the Sabbath. Now, there are three things I want you to pick up from this scripture. Verse 1 to 2 talks about binding. And who were doing the binding? The Pharisees. And why were the Pharisees doing the binding? Because they were teachers of the law who had that authority. Their job was to make people understand the tenets concerning the law. There are parts of the law which prohibits you from doing something and there are parts of the law which permits you to do some things. So, in any part of the law that prohibits you from doing something is called binding. You are forbid. So, these people put the motion of binding into force that you haven't washed your hands. The law says you will have to wash your hands before you pluck grain fields. Before you pluck grain fields. That's binding. But when you read verses 3 to 7, Jesus, who also had authority, loosed them. Because he said it's permissible. And when you read verse 8, it explained the authority on which Jesus could loose the people. 
he, he, he didn't have the same authority as the Pharisees. He even had a higher authority than the Pharisees. He said, I am not a religious teacher. You know, Jesus was known as a teacher. He, he was called rabbi. It, it was known. But Jesus said, I am not just a teacher. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. You see, he has authority to lose the people. He has authority to permit the people to eat the grain fields. So you see, when it comes to binding and loosing, it's synonymous with Jewish law. Binding has to do with forbidding. Loosing has to do with permitting. That's why when you read um, the book of Acts, chapter 10, I believe. No, chapter 10 was when um, 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 Peter went to visit Cornelius. So probably chapter 9. When you read chapter 9, it talks about Peter had a vision of unclean animals. And you know, Peter was a Jew. That is very offensive to him. And when he had a vision that eat, he said, I can't eat these things. These things are unclean. The Lord said that that which is clean, you should not call unclean. And what Peter saw in the vision as dietary had to do with now sending the gospel to the Gentile world. That is the authority of binding and loosing. So now, during the Old Testament covenant, it was forbidden that the Gentiles will also be a seed of Abraham because they were uncircumcised. But when Peter had this vision, he went to preach to Cornelius and Cornelius gave his life to Christ and then he laid hands on Cornelius and Cornelius spoke in tongues. He received the girl of the Holy Spirit. That is loosen. Do we understand? Now, in light of that, it's also very important to understand that when it comes to binding and loosing, when we are praying, that's also scriptural. The Bible permits us to bind things. When you read Mark chapter 3, it's there. The Bible says that when you go into a strong man, you will have to bind the strong man and plunder his goods. The strong man there refers to the devil because the people were accusing Jesus that he was casting out demons by the spirit of Beelzebub. And Jesus said, no, I don't. A strong man, when he enters into a house, he has to first and foremost bind the strong man. So there is a place where we have to bind the works of the devil. And to bind the works of the devil simply means that I forbid the devil's operations in this area. And then we can also lose. Lose has to do with setting captives free. People who are strung out high on addiction. People who who have bondages, you know. This week we just had a popular celebrity died of an addiction, you know. People who are strung high on addiction. We have the authority to also lose them. Permit them to be free. So it is okay to use that term, I bind and I lose. That's correct but to be faithful to the integrity of the scripture here. This context here is not talking about a prayer language. It's talking more about permitting and forbidding. Do you understand? Now, this key was passed on to the apostles. That's why when you read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, the Bible now lets us know that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. How is the church built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets? It's built on the prophets because 
we receive the law. And like I said, parts of the law, there are some places that you are forbidden to do some things and some places where you are permitted to do some things. It's called binding and loosening. It's, it's also built on the apostles because it's true the apostles that we had the epistles. And when you read the epistles, which makes up the New Testament, parts of it, we are forbidden to do some things. Parts of it, we are permitted to do some things. That's also called binding and loosening. So a typical example of binding is you shall not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. That's binding. Who was it written by? Paul. He had the keys of the kingdom. He had authority to bind. And whatever he binds on earth is bound in heaven. This is not a prayer language. So now, we who are Christians, we follow that law, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And then we also have permission to do some things which is also loosened. One of them is stand fast in the liberty wherein Christ has set you free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. That is loosened. We are permitted to be free and not go back to the works of legalism. Do you understand me? So when Jesus talks about binding and loosening in Matthew chapter 16 verse 19, it's not prayer vocabulary. It's a different connotation altogether. Now, with that said, when was the church incepted? The church was incepted in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. So whatever Jesus said was just a future proclamation. It was a prophetic picture of the church. And when Jesus left and ascended into heaven, the Bible lets us know that the church was in full inception in Acts chapter 2. So there are some things we can learn about the first century church because that is the first model that we saw. And all churches that we have from now, you know, into contemporary times, we all have that model to follow, which is biblical. So with that, I just want us to read one verse and then we take some few points and then we pray. Acts chapter 2 verse 42. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Now, this church is talking about the church of Jerusalem. If you want to understand it, just read the whole story. It will really make sense. But I just want to pick up this verse for the brevity of time and talk about some things. And they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. This summarizes what the church is. So from this verse, there are three things we can deduce from a church. His church, the church, the church that Christ built. What is that? It's a gathering of believers who have assembled to worship. That's the church. Now, these are some features. One, it is a place of discipleship. So a church should be a place of discipleship. And you see that the Bible said that they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The premier agent to discipline a, a member or one who joins a church is the word of God. And when the, pe- the, when the person is discipled effectively, the fruit of effective discipleship is devotion. They become devoted to the Bible. So it's a place of discipleship. Number two, it's a place of community. Why do I say that? Because it talks about fellowship and the breaking of bread. 
So church is also not just a place of spiritual maturity and spiritual growth. Church is also a place of relationships. It's community. And that's why when you take that communal aspect away from the church, you kill the church. Church is a place of community. We come together in like manner and we fellowship with one another. That is also church. Number three, church is a place of prayer. And Jesus prophesied about that in John chapter 2. When he overturned the money changes and he used the whip, of course, to drive, drive out the people who were turning the house of God into merchandise, Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. So church is a place of prayer. So church is a place of discipleship. It's a place of community. It's a place of prayer. One of the true signs of a believer is he belongs to a local church. My last scripture, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. I want to read this in the Amplified Classic. AMPC. Not forsaking or neglecting to assemble together as believers, as is the habit of some people. You know, so it's a, it's a prevalent thing. There are some people who will never like church. It's a habit. And let me tell you, church is designed in such a way that you don't grow in a vacuum. You don't grow individually. You grow in a community. But admonition, which is warning, urging, encouraging one another and all the more faithfully as you see the day approaching. So church is a place where you receive admonition. And when we talk about admonition, it is warning, urging, and encouraging. It's done in a community. It's not done in an abstract place. It's not done in a vacuum. And you can't do that individually. And that's why it's important for all of us to belong to a local church. Amen. A church is important to a believer as a pond is to a fish. If you ever want to know the importance of a church to a believer, take a fish out of the pond and see how it behaves. That is a Christian. You and I need the church. Therefore, we should thank God that he had us in mind by instituting the most powerful agency called the church, which is made up of a group of believers. Let's pray. Can you just say thank you to him? Thank God that he established the church. He established the church with your welfare in mind. He established the church so that you will be discipled to grow into the image and the likeness of him. He established the church so that you will have a community of like-minded people to relate with. He established the church so that it will be a place we can foster fellowship with him through prayer. And he established the church so that we can receive admonition. That is why we should gather together, where we can receive warnings, urgings, and encouragements. Thank God for the church. We give you praise. Thank you, Lord, that you've built the most important agency, which is a group of blood-bought believers saved by your grace. We give you praise, O Lord, for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.